0: From Brick in downtown Brooklyn, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is Glitter and Doom, a show about the most pressing issues of our times and the artists and cultural creators who are doing something about them. To say that Ed Bertinsky is a landscape photographer is not incorrect, but if you're thinking of dreamy sunsets over white sand beaches or majestic eagles soaring over Half Dome, that's not what he does. Bertinsky photographs industrial landscapes, mega factories in China, open pit mines in British Columbia, hundreds of oil derricks stretching towards the horizon in Azerbaijan. His images are beautiful. You catch yourself marveling at their colors and textures before realizing that what you're looking at is a snapshot of environmental devastation. But Bratinsky is not just a photographer. Together with filmmakers Jennifer Bechwal and Nick de he has made three documentaries using his still photographs as a jumping-off point. The latest is called Anthropocene, the Human Epic. I sat down with Bratinsky and de to talk about elephants, extractive industries, and questionable Swiss avant-garde theater. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Ed Bertinsky, Nick Depencier. Uh You have a film coming out called Anthropocene. And well, for people who aren't familiar with what you do, maybe we can just start there. What is Anthropocene and how does this fit into your larger body of work?
1: The term Anthropocene is actually an official unit in the geological time scale. So the you know, the Jurassic and the Holocene, the epochs and eras that geologists divide up our Earth's history. And it's a proposed unit that would be the human epoch, the Anthropocene, because in fact, the research of the Anthropocene working group of scientists shows that it is humans more than all the natural forces combined who are affecting the systems of the planet.
0: Nick, you are a filmmaker. You and your partner in work and life, Jennifer, are are documentary filmmakers, and this primarily is a film of images. There's some voiceover, there's some verite sound, but mainly we are dealing with images taken from around the world, showing the ways in which humans are changing the face of the planet. How many different countries are represented in this film?
2: Uh, twenty countries, uh, about I think forty six locations, you know, about three years of, of shooting and organizing shoots. So and we wanted it to be a global story. We didn't want it to be a localized story because you can find all of these um, you know topics that the scientists were using to define the Anthropocene, you know even within you know a, a couple hundred kilometers of our city, Toronto.
0: Ed, your photography has a real point of view. Uh, Ed Bertinsky photograph is recognizable. Um, actually, maybe this is a question for Nick. Mm-hmm. For somebody who's not familiar with Ed's photography, when you're looking at an Ed Bertinsky photo, what are you seeing?:
1: Ed Bertinsky is the master of um, a comprehensive view of often a very complex human system, a mine, a quarry, an environmental site that has tons of visual complexity and lots of implied narratives. And he has a way of finding um, a vantage point and technically, at super high resolution, um, telling the story of that place in a single frame. So, you, know, you stand in front of a Bertinsky photograph and, and you fall into it.
2: In terms of my photography, um, I started, I fell in love with it in the 70s, but uh, started working professionally in the early 80s and decided early on that I wanted to use my camera to try to Um, connect us to the largest human interventions or human systems on the planet um, from our transportation systems to our homes, to our food, to all of those things. So, I was interested in kind of taking that disconnected world that we all partake of every day and reconnect us to those landscapes. So, that was um, an idea that I had in the early 80s. And I pretty much worked on stills uh, throughout it and then in the early 2000s, started becoming interested in in the idea of having a video camera or a videographer with me uh, in these great locations. And I started there, and then Eventually bumped into Jennifer, who saw some of the material uh, from one of the uh, videographers who was following me and thought, oh, this could be a film. And that was really the beginning of manufactured landscapes. And I was interested in the ability of film to to be more of a, a narrative storytelling medium that can extend the context of these worlds that I was looking at as a stills photographer.
0: So the film is narrated by Alicia Vikander. And her opening words are since 2009, 2009, a group of scientists.
1: A group of scientists has been investigating whether our 12,000 year old geological epoch, the Holocene, has ended. After nine years of research, the evidence shows that we have left the Holocene and entered the Anthropocene epoch. because humans now change the earth and its systems more than all natural processes combined
0: what are these systems that humans are changing and that you explore through this film
1: the biggest ones in terms of their sort of scope and and breadth and footprint are things like terraforming how we actually physically change the surface of the earth agriculture, urbanization, um, uh, all of these things that we do move more sediment, you know, in in one operation like the Canadian tar sands with all of that massive machinery and, and engineering than all the rivers of the world combined. So if you think of, of those processes uh, that in geological time where mountains get torn down by millennia of rainstorms, um, we now have an impact in this tiny blip of our 10,000-year uh, civilization uh, that has surpassed that natural process.
0: So if we have indeed entered a new geologic age, this would be the first time that scientists have called it, sort of while it's happening, right? When you think about these geologic ages, the Paleocene the Holocene, the way that geologists think about it is by variations in, in the rock, is that right? They're looking at, oh, this must have been a very nitrogen-rich age because of what we see as sediment compressed in the geologic record over time. So how are they able to sort of in the current moment look at this geologic record and say something has shifted?
2: Well, they're probably looking They're looking at the muck at this point and all the stuff that might that would go forward into the future, so they're looking at it as a geologist might be here two million years from now, and you know, going through strata and trying to all of a sudden, you know, here's this lithified, lithified layer, and there's a, a aluminum coke can there, or there's some um, you know concrete that's there. Uh, concrete being the number one technofossil that we create and that we've left behind. So they'd say, "Aha! This is part of the Anthropocene." Because this is something that nature couldn't create, so we as a species created it and left it behind, and it can now go forward. We're deforesting, you know, um, continents and uh, at a level that's, again, almost hard to imagine. So we are reshaping the planet both in the oceans and on land, and changing what's happening in the in the ice caps because uh, of the burning of CO two. 99.9% of scientists agree that uh, it's human activity that's, that's generating this, this rapid acceleration of changes on the planet.
0: It's wild that we're still having conversations about whether or not humans are to blame for this rapid acceleration of changes on the planet. Scientists have so many ways to establish that this is empirically true. For example, by examining owl pellets. These pellets can be found in caves where generation after generation of owls come to roost. So if the pellets are protected from the elements, they can provide an excellent fossil record. But what are owl pellets? It's vomit. We're talking about vomit.
1: The barn owl has keen eyes. It can see mice or other prey at great distances.
0: Owls may have keen eyes and sensitive ears, but what they do not have are digestive systems capable of processing the bones, teeth, and fur of their small rodent prey. So instead they kind of just barf it all up in these lumps that look like furry charcoal briquettes. There's video online, if you're so inclined. It kind of looks like an owl is silent screaming, and then all of a sudden it unceremoniously regurgitates one of these pellets. But how is this related to the Anthropocene? In Utah, scientists examined a cache of well-preserved owl pellets found in a cave. And what they found was that small mammals were pretty okay during a period of global warming 13,000 years ago. This, of course, is something that climate change deniers love to trot out. That the Earth goes through warming cycles periodically, so everything's chill.
1: They say that we had hurricanes that were far worse than what we just had with Michael. In. Who says that? They say. Mean well, people, the people, say the people say that indeed. Yeah, but what about night? the
2: scientists who say it's worse than ever? Uh.
0: But the owl pellets show that since the late 1800s, during our current period of warming, rodent diversity and abundance have plummeted. Rebecca Terry, an assistant professor at Oregon State University, says that this shows, quote, a dramatic breakdown in ecosystem behavior in a way that doesn't parallel what happened when major climatic warming took place at the end of the last ice age. Terry says that human intervention has totally altered the ecosystem, not only because of the increase of greenhouse gases being released into the atmosphere, but because of the introduction of invasive species, livestock grazing, mining, and railroads. And this is all very bad news for the local small mammal population. Humankind's footprint on the land, and therefore on other species, is undeniable. And we know this all thanks to owl vomit. You open and close the film with the same scene, and it really is one of the images that stays with you long after you leave the theater. Nick, can you describe what is happening in this scene?
1: Yes, species extinction is one of the real hallmarks of the Anthropocene. It's widely accepted we're in the middle of of the sixth mass mass extinction that's happened in our planet's history. And it's, I think, one of the um, maybe easiest points of entry for a viewer uh, to kind of understand human impact on the planet. So the Kenyan government for decades had been stockpiling confiscated elephant tusks and rhino horn that they had got from poachers from illegal killing Um, and it got to be such a critical mass it was worth tens of millions of dollars and uh, a wildlife biologist named dr winnie carew uh, who had itemized and uh, archived almost all of these elephant tusks had the idea to burn it and invite the media and make this radical statement to poachers and to the markets that feed them uh, worldwide that elephant ivory belongs on living elephants and that there will be no market for this. So, during filming, we learned of this event that was going to happen. And it's one of the most impactful moments of my life, it will never leave me, to be among piles of elephant tusks, 11 piles, you know, 20 feet tall, that represent thousands and thousands of elephants who have been killed by humans. And to be among the, these piles in this apocalyptic conflagration, it seemed um, so end of the earth.
0: And Ed, can you tell me what these piles of ivory, what they look like?
2: They're kind of really brownish in color. They're not white. Um, they often have um, numbering and lettering, the date in which uh, it was confiscated from the poacher, uh, the location where it came from. Sometimes they're so big that that, that you know two full-grown men have to carry it uh, to these piles, knowing that there's only twenty-five of these super tuskers that have tusks that are, you know, eight or nine feet long, that would take two two people to carry it. And there were more... I'm
0: sorry, when you said there's only 25...
2: Of these big elephants left in Africa.
0: There are only 25 alive.
2: Yeah, and and we were the probably watching... Tuskers. We were probably watching the super tuskers of 100 elephants being burned. And they said if you put all of those elephants in a line, there would be a 30-kilometer-long line of elephants uh, that went to their death. That's, that's like not even a year's worth of of all across the continent, elephants being slaughtered.
0: What did it smell like and what did it physically feel like to be there while they were being burned?
2: Well, the burn itself, the overwhelming smell is diesel because uh, ivory is like tooth enamel. It doesn't burn. So the only way you can burn it, you can't put, you know, wood underneath it and light a fire and have it catch fire. It won't catch fire. Uh, You have to just keep, Putting flame on it until it breaks down. So the overwhelming smell was a smell of diesel. Um, when they opened up these containers and while they were building these piles, there is a smell of death. There's remnants on these elephant tusks, and and so it is you know pretty pretty hard to to handle.
0: In the early 20th century, the population of African elephants was somewhere between three and five million. Today, the World Wildlife Foundation estimates that across Africa, there are only around 400,000 elephants left. As Ed and Nick mentioned, the decimation of the elephant population can be attributed to the ivory trade. Ivory was used for jewelry, trinkets, billiard balls, and up until the 1970s, piano keys. That's where the phrase tickling the ivories comes from.
2: Tickle the ivories, (laughs) Rose.
0: Artist and environmental activist Jenny Kendler wanted to draw attention to this crisis with her 2016 project Music for Elephants, a eulogy for the future. Working with data from the NRDC, she developed an algorithm that predicted how many elephants would die each month if illegal poaching continues at its current rate. She then translated this projection into a musical score. The composition is a countdown of sorts. Each note represents one month, and the note's pitch represents death. The lower the pitch, the more elephants that have been killed. At the beginning of the piece, we start with the 400,000 elephants left in the world today. And after 10 minutes, or 300 months, there is only silence. All the elephants are gone. Music for Elephants is not only a musical composition. It's a physical installation as well that has been exhibited at the Smithsonian and the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago. In this installation, the score is played by a 1921 player piano. Its keys are made of ivory. I want to talk about scale. You have this shot that you use in this film, in the Crer Marble Factory, and you've used it in previous films as well, uh, where you start you start in on a subject and then you pull out, it's a drone shot, and you pull out and you pull out and you pull out until you realize that what had filled the frame at the beginning is just a speck in this larger field of vision. Are you just tempted to use that all the time? I mean, it's such a powerful shot. How do you decide this is going to be the one that we're going to do this for?
1: If you want to... Um try and really impart an idea of the scale of something like this beautiful immersive cathedral like marble quarry in carrera resonating and freighted with all of michelangelo's sculptures and beautiful architectural expressions of human achievement through i mean millennia since antiquity why wouldn't you use a shot like that to express that scale in time like you can in film instead of just hovering in the wide shot at, at the end? And and I hope that it's never um, gratuitous that we're using a drone with the tension of a big reveal shot um, that might be the same as a Hollywood film. I think, why not?
0: Ed, you mentioned in a New Yorker profile that when you're thinking about framing— a shot like this. You don't want to be farther away than 800 feet because as soon as you go past that, the details start to become insignificant and the landscape starts becoming more pattern and less recognizable. So what is that sweet spot that you are looking for?
2: Well, most of the time I'm looking at um, human systems that I want to be able to, that the viewer can recognize the tractor or the pickup truck or the school bus or something in there that allows them to begin to you know reverse engineer this from that to understand the scale of the whole image there there are times i'm sitting there going holy shit we as humans created that you know like it, the scale is so huge.
0: Is there an example of a time that you felt
2: that way? Well, the well, the if you look in Anthropocene, when you look at the machine, the bagger that's removing all the soil, you know, it's got 18 buckets on a wheel. Each bucket is the size of a, you know, cab of a 2-ton pickup truck, and then it's and it's moving, you know, thousands and thousands of tons of material per minute. Um and you know, literally reshaping a landscape on a scale that's almost incomprehensible.
0: It's astounding. It's like the Death Star meets Howell's moving castle.
2: <laughs> so yeah, these are you're sitting there going, We built that? You know, like you know and then and you have to like you don't have to go too far. Walk down, you know, you know, Madison Avenue through the city and you get look at what we've built. We're used to it you know, but what's the consequence of this? And and, and and what does this add up to? What's the sum of all these things in, in terms of and what does it mean to life on earth, not just human life, but all life on earth?
0: Ed, do you see yourself as part of a lineage of landscape photographers?
2: When you look at the kind of Edward Weston and Ansel Adams tradition, I kind of was interested in the pure landscape, the kind of, you know, non-man altered landscape. You know, so That pristine landscape was something that I was looking at and photographing with a large format camera for for a few years. And it was kind of through the fact that I worked in industry, but then I came across an industrial area and started shooting it while I was doing landscape photography. And that winter when I was printing, it occurred to me that those man-altered landscapes were actually more in keeping with the period of time that I'm living in, that, that the pristine landscape seemed to be something that felt right at the time when they were doing the work where they were trying to preserve national parks and hold on to this thing we call nature, and and they, they understood it as well, that it was under threat. But we've kind of done that, and then we're now at a period where technology, the internal combustion engine, the machinery that we've now invented, the scale of human population, uh, the photographing large human systems seemed to make more sense to be in keeping with my time uh, as an artist uh, and to say to leave a record I think about that all the time as an artist and and uh, it's almost 40 years now that I've been photographing this so I see it as a compendium of large-scale human systems that ha- that in a way have led to the problems that we have today as well I think
0: You mentioned that you were inspired by the fact that you had worked in industry. Um, You worked in a factory, you worked in mining when you were a young man, and your father died young. I take it that you were not working in these industries thinking, oh, well, this will be good fodder for my art later on. Um, How did you come to combine your passion for photography and this early experience working in mining and in factories?
2: Well, I was at a time as well um, when I was younger where there wasn't um, any support. My mother didn't have any uh, resources to put me through school. So it was up to me to either get grants, loans, or earn money to put myself through school. So factory jobs or mining jobs paid the most. So I ended up working in those places because they provided the, the best return over a summer so I can go back to school. And I didn't think, that that would ultimately someday become my subject.
0: Do you think your history working in factories and in mines does it inform the way in which you interact with the human subjects who you deal with in both your photography and in the filmmaking? I'm thinking of this scene in Siberia, in this heavy metals plant. It's the most polluted city in Russia. Uh, and it feels like you are in the furnaces of hell, right? There's molten metal all around. There's no natural light. As a viewer, it's very claustrophobic. And then you interview these two women, and one of them says, you know, when you first get here, it kind of sucks. But now that we've been here a while, you find beauty in it. Does the fact that you did that work, does it allow you to approach your subjects in a way that maybe you wouldn't otherwise?
2: Well, those scenes were actually uh, Jennifer and Nick, you know, uh, looking for those kinds of moments. I have worked in those places, and I do have a... I'm fairly comfortable in a mine site, or I'm fairly comfortable in a factory. Nick and Jen are the kind of uh, team that are always out there, you know, parsing the the individuals and looking for for their stories.
0: Yeah, how do you think about that, Nick? Because you really do need these moments of humanity amidst these otherwise stark landscapes and those moments of humor in the film when the audience laughs together feel like a release valve
1: i love documentary because there's such a wide gamut of practice and extreme uh end of the scale would be projects like Quaniscotzi and these these hyper visual um, abstract, beautiful objects almost as as films. And a film like Anthropocene plays in that world a bit, the highly visual world. Um, but I think it means more when you also bring in those particular moments when 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 it lands. In, in, a, in a human moment, and there's a connection and, a, and an intersection uh, with somebody watching the film, somebody who lives in a totally different context. And yet, if we're successful, like you say, there's this shared humanity, there's something that you can have a connection with of someone in that environment.
0: One way that documentary filmmakers often try to grapple with these seemingly insurmountable issues like climate change is to distill it down and tell a very specific human story. Um, So I'm thinking about The Island President or Gasland, where the concept is climate change, and this is how it impacts this one human who we are hoping that you identify with. And your films do something very different. What do you think is different about this approach, and how do you hope that it has outcomes that Maybe are similar to these quiet, intimate human stories, but, but are slightly different because of the way in which you told the story of climate change.
2: From manufactured landscapes and onwards to working with Jen and Nick, I don't think they're traditional documentary films. I think there's, they, they sit somewhere between documentary and an art film. If you go in there very polemic with saying, you know, this is wrong, you know, and, and, and you know, being accusatory rather than revelatory, I think you shut off a lot of people and we're hoping that people who you know who may be considering that well maybe there is a problem that a film like this or these films can have a conversion effect to say well yeah there is a problem because you know this visual evidence of what i'm seeing isn't a chart by a scientist it isn't a written text in a newspaper or a magazine it's something that i'm experiencing of the real world i think it just stands as a, a, a very powerful form of evidence and witnessing. Mm
0: -hmm. One criticism that's been made of of your work is that it's almost too beautiful. Um, Do you think that an oil executive, for example, could see one of your photographs and think, this is great. I want this on the wall of, of my penthouse. And are you open to that interpretation?
2: I think that 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 um, it is interesting that the work itself, um, you know, has all kinds of ways in which it can be read. Uh, it, it, that same piece can probably, you know, uh, be put on the wall in Greenpeace and uh, uh, as a poster for, you know, what oil is. Oil companies are doing to the to, to the landscape. If you take an image and you as the artist tell people what it is and what how you should think about it, I think it really limits uh, the reading of that and 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 fixes the meaning of that piece, and then it just becomes an illustration to whatever the 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 you know, criticism or whatever the polemic that you're you're, you're using this as uh, as evidence of.
0: I have a fairly specific question. A subset of things that you guys are interested seems to be human artistic response to man's triumph over nature. And I'm thinking of a couple scenes in Anthropocene. There's Metallurgy Day in Siberia, where there's a bunch of sort of bridesmaid dress clad women and men in tuxedos singing praises to uh, human friendship and triumph. Um, And then there's also this very odd sort of Swiss avant-garde modern dance performance where dancers are in orange jumpsuits and then they shed them to reveal nude colored underwear. And there's yodeling and there's sort of a, a, a yak mountain goat creature. And the whole thing seems like it could have been directed by Ivo van Hove on a bad day. And this is to celebrate the opening of a tunnel through the Swiss Alps. What is it about these weird forms of um, arts and culture that you guys feel drawn to?
1: Um, you're right that it's very much a subset, but I'm really glad you picked up on that because it's it's one of my favorite layers. And we work in film in this magical medium where it really is an amalgam of of all these wonderful, powerful human artistic achievements. And this is our response to the science of the Anthropocene Working Group as artists. So in a way, it's, it's a meta-level kind of thing to include other responses to... Uh, a more industrial or prosaic or um, to the environments, right? We have the sculptures uh, that are being carved in the studios in Carrera from the marble. We can't just be reductive about good or bad practices that, that we're doing, but there's a whole complexity of of expression, of humanity, that is incredibly complex, that we will have to bring along with us wherever we're going in whatever the future looks like.
0: So Nick is talking about the ways in which humans celebrate their triumph over nature through art, right? But what about the transformation of land as a form of artistic expression? I'm thinking not only of land artists like Robert Smithson and Agnes Dennis, but also of ancient civilizations who shaped the earth in enigmatic ways, like the Nazca lines of Peru. The Nazca people, who flourished in the southern Peruvian desert around the time of Christ, dug these shallow troughs into the earth that can still be seen to this day. Some of them take the form of animals, a monkey with a coiled tail like a fiddlehead fern or a spider with eight wavy legs. My producer, Isabel, Hi, can you hear me? called up Peruvian archaeologist and former minister of culture, Luis Jaime Castillo, to talk about these mysterious lines and whether or not they can be considered art. The famous lines, the famous ones that have figures are art. Somebody combined lines and curves and
1: and spirals and managed to design these beautiful representations of animals. A hummingbird in full flight, or these birds, or, excuse me, these monkeys, or dogs, no? So yes, there is clearly artistry there. The, the reason, that why did they do them, that is not that clear. Some people think that they might have been related with water supplies and water sources. Other people think that they are an astronomical calendar. It is very rare for humans not to transform nature, not to transform the landscape. And
0: this transformation always no, it's 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 a negotiation between nature and culture. For societies in the past, the issue was how to feed your people. Mm. You see, not how to keep this balance. I mean, uh, the, the 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 romantic notion that we sometimes have of, I mean, of ancient societies as being societies that, that are in equilibrium with Mother Gaia. No? <laughs> I mean, that that is that is, I mean, that is. That'd be very romantic, you know? In the past, people were living kind of just above the line of what is called carrying capacity. That means that the amount of food that was produced from the ground and the amount of people were basically in equilibrium. They They probably pushed everything to the limit. Now, and many times beyond that limit, because if we look around, we will see that many, many areas, many hillsides that were once upon a time used for agriculture are now abandoned. So
2: in terms of sustainability, you could say that some efforts Mm -hmm. were not sustainable.
0: Is there any landscape that you feel like you wouldn't photograph, where you would feel that it would cross some sort of ethical line?
1: Hmm.
2: Gosh, that's a really good question. I mean, one thing that c- would come to mind that w- w- I'd, I'd probably have trouble with because there's just no way you can represent it in any kind of a soft or, or, or a mediated or a comfortable way, which be, let's say, you know, if we went into the um, agri farming business and uh, you know a, a cattle abattoir, like a, no matter how you'd want to represent that, there would be like. a a very harsh reality that you'd be bringing, you know, the death of cows and the whole industrial process of that. And it would be powerful, you know, to say, look at what industry has done, you know, look at at what it takes to, to feed, you know, protein to humans and all of that. But I would say, you know, I would have, we would have a hard time probably to bring that into a film because as soon as you have that there, It's going to be such a heavy, it's going to be so hard and so sensational. It just kind of sucks all the oxygen out of the rest of the film, I would think.
0: Where can people see Anthropocene and find out more about the project?
1: Uh, So the film Anthropocene, The Human Epic, is available for streaming on the Canopy platform starting on January 1st and will be available in theaters uh, on a sort of rotating basis as well.
0: Nick, Ed, thank you so much for joining okay. me today.
1: My pleasure. Thanks, McKinsey. Okay. Thanks, McKinsey.
0: Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, it would really help us if you would subscribe, if you would like the show, wherever you get your podcasts, if you would tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell your mom, tell your enemies' mom, whatever. We appreciate it all. Thanks so much. Glitter and Doom is made by me, Mackenzie Fagan. Ross Tuttle, Isabel Alcantara, Mira Al Rahim, Naeem Van, and Eric Hogaseg. It is executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Isham.